From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. The podcast is sponsored by City Lights Brewing Company, an award-winning brewery and taproom set in the historic Milwaukee Gas Company buildings right on the banks of the Menominee River. As you know, I'm a home brewer and an investor in another brewery, which gives me a little more insight than the average beer drinker. I was impressed by the quality of the team and, more importantly, their selection of innovative craft beers. You can enjoy a pint in the taproom overlooking the brew house or take in some fresh air in the relaxing beer garden set on the river. They also have a great beer-inspired food menu. Please visit citylightsbrewing.com for more details. In 1989, I started home brewing before the craft beer movement had really gained momentum. I thought this was a great way to save money. The first batches were pretty good, but it didn't always go as planned, especially when the beer overcarbonated and exploded in the closet. Despite this, I loved it. Making better beer than you could buy was really cool. I considered turning my hobby into an actual business, but never took the leap. I had a good job that paid well, and I was worried that the joy of brewing would be lost by turning it into work. On today's episode, I talk with Sumit Bora, who pivoted from a career as a computer scientist at Cisco to the CEO and founder of Lone Rider Brewery in Raleigh, North Carolina. In a rapidly saturating market, the craft beer scene is not what it was like even a decade ago. Sumit and Lone Rider are leaning into their brand and culture as a way to distinguish themselves among thousands of competitors. We discuss what being an entrepreneur is like at a large established business and the difficult process of turning what some consider a hobby into a profitable enterprise and the challenging decisions that business owners face when dealing with people and profits. My conversation with Summit touches on a key point of the podcast. The innovation is rooted in the belief that every day you can do something better. Summit is open and honest about the difficulty of running a business in an overcrowded industry, and he gives great advice and reflection on how he's able to keep moving forward. We took the concept of the podcast literally and recorded live with a pint of beer at Lone Rider Brewery. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Thank you uh, for being on Innovators on Tap. It's great to have you here today. Oh, glad to be here. And it's great to have you hosting us at the Lone Rider's newest hideout here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. This is a great location. Thank you. Took a lot of work, a lot of people, and it's still continuing to do that. But it's, but it's good. It's open. Feedback's been extremely positive. So we're happy that it's here now in Wake oh. Forest. I thought I'd start this podcast a little differently than others because uh, it reminds me of why I named my podcast Innovators on Tap. One of the things that would happen at Cree is we'd be working on a problem, having a tough day, and uh, you know things would come up. And, and, and finally, sometimes you got stuck and I'd say, hey, you know what? Let's just go grab a beer. And we go sit down, have a beer. And it was amazing over a beer how you just seem to be able to 
I think relax, think different, open your mind and solve problems in a different way. And so when I wanted to have honest, creative conversations with people about innovation, I said, it should be like having a beer. And so that's where the name came from. And what was interesting is we found a quote where you said, you are talking about beer and you said, it's the only thing I know that gets people to come together and actually have honest conversations. <laughs> and since one of the keys to innovation is getting people to have open and honest conversations, what's your perspective? Why does, what's the magic of beer? Why does this happen? Other than the social lubrication portion of it? And that might be it. Okay. The alcohol has nothing to do with it. I think it's the, in my mind, it's the idea. It's the idea that you're actually going to have a conversation with somebody without the rigidity of a boardroom. Now your guard is down and you're actually able to say what's on your mind rather than obviously having to think about things that are stuck on wall, including mission statements. So you are going into a zone where you don't have to worry and you can actually say what's on your mind. So what do you think it is that happens when we're not here, right? When we're sitting in that boardroom or we're sitting in our cubes or wherever we might be working, what is that impediment that's in our way? Most of the time when you're having conversations over beer, they're in smaller settings. And even if they're in a bigger setting, it is an open atmosphere. When you are in a place in a boardroom, at least that's where I feel, that's why I don't have an office. My car is my office or a bar. And it's been like that for 10 years. It takes away the sameness of in and out every day. When you're in an office, you're sitting, you're confined by walls. That's all you're thinking of. Your vision is limited. When you're sitting in a bar or sitting in a location where you can drink a beer and chill, just the visual cues themselves are different than what you're used to. You go to your desk, you do the same thing every day, and you fall into habits, good or bad, and you forget about how to think different. And that's why over beer, it's better. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, as you were describing it, it's like when we're in those other environments, those boundary conditions, whether they're real or imagined, whether they're really walls mm -hmm. or they're just expectations, that they, they create a box of expectations yeah. that it's kind of hard to get out of. And you, know, you literally physically get out of that space and sit down and you know this is kind of the anti-box environment. It is the anti-box environment. It's, I mean, you've seen the thing that we have had on our philosophy for 10 years, which is effect change don't be an audience. Instead of thinking outside the box, imagine what if there was no box? Even folks that have the best intention of staying outside the box fall back into that paradigm because life gets in the way. And it's a conscious effort you have to make yourself do to continue to remind yourself, think different. It just doesn't always come naturally, but you have to remind yourself because it's important. So let me uh, step back for a moment. One of the things I find when I talk to people uh, about innovation or I've done research on it is that how people grow up mm -hmm. really has a big effect on, on who they are and how they think about certain things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you have a different background than most people who are going to listen to this podcast. You grew mm -hmm. up in India. Can you tell us, just give me a little bit, what was that like? We'll, we'll transition into you coming to the States. You're absolutely right about that. I grew up in an environment where, in a household, I should say, uh, my parents are very polite. They are amazing people, but they bred politeness into me from day one. And it is, thank you, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Not in those words, of course, in Hindi, but they did that. And that stays with you. I mean, I didn't come here until I was 16. When that stays with you, it affects how you get into confrontation and how you think differently. And culture has a lot to do with it. Some cultures naturally reward it. In U.S., there's a lot of talk about entrepreneurship. 
I grew up in a culture where the expectation for me was, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be an engineer, or you're going to be a lawyer. I said, great. So I ran away from the country, ended up being an engineer, but at some point was able to do what I really wanted to do. Do you think that um, some of that politeness and the lack of confrontation has, has challenged you sometimes to do some of the things you need to do? Absolutely. Because of the way I have always operated, it is sometimes difficult to tell the other person, well, you're full of crap. And so I don't do it as often as I should. But yes, it does hamper you. It does make you think twice about what you're going to say, especially if, and you're going to laugh at this, the part about having somebody as an elder, yeah? In India, guest is a welcome entity in the house. Parents are to be respected. And anybody who's over the age that you can say, okay, well, he's 10, 15 years older than I am, well, he's to be respected. That's bred into you until you're 16. When you try to get into innovation, it becomes really difficult to tell somebody who's your elder, yeah, man, you're totally wrong. But, you know, over time I've been able to do it, but it is definitely difficult. You're 16. You decide to come to the U.S. Um, was that your idea, your parents' idea? How'd that come about? I knew I couldn't do what I needed to do back home. I knew I was going to end up being in the same I would have done things and uh, made my parents proud, but it would have been the same challenge I would have had. I wouldn't get to do what I really wanted to, which was, for lack of a better word, escape. Um, go to a place where ideas are not treated as you shouldn't have one. I'm not saying that all India is like that because there's a ton of smart people that come from there, but there is absolutely a box of expectations that starts when you go into elementary it is on you until you graduate. You get to Alabama and I just, I can't even imagine the culture shock. You had not been to the States before that. Is that correct? No. So you get on a plane, you're going to college and you've never been to this country. 24 hour flight. I didn't sleep. I was like, sleep. If I sleep, what's going to happen to me? I hadn't been on a plane before. I think I'd been on a plane once and I get here and I just decided not to sleep because I didn't know what I was going to do because the plane flew through... Zurich. I barely spoke English. I mean, I knew English very well in the written form because that's what I learned from day one. But I really wasn't very conversant in it. And just going like, what happens if I miss the announcement for the flight that I'm supposed to board next? I will be left stranded here. So you get a degree in, is it engineering or computer science or computer science and bachelor's and then a master's was in computer science. And then from there you go and get a job in industry? Cisco. And then you're at Cisco. And I read somewhere that uh, you were um, considered an entrepreneur. I started actually this uh, initiative in this organization. I called it Innovate at Cisco. And my first thing was, okay, I'll put together a plan. My second thing was, well, we can't do it here. Innovation in a traditional organization is really hard. You can't do it. But everybody that supported me went, but you don't got a choice. Either you make a program that fits these confines or you go away. So I made a program, set up all the initiatives, set up the reward system. We had people come up with ideas like we would be doing uh, cables, uh, cabling in routers. Yeah. So we'll be setting up a network. One of the ideas was very simple. The guy said, look, all of us spend a lot of time labeling. 
which end is what, which goes where. He's like, why can't we just call our cable company, tell them to pre-label those cables end-to-end so we don't have to do it? And he called them. They did it. And I was like, this is an organization full of really bright people. But nobody had thought of it. So that's why the entrepreneur part. You're fresh out of college. You haven't been in the country that long. You go to work for a very large tech company. What do you think allowed you to be able to take, I mean, that's a risk. Most people go, hey, why don't rock the boat, right? You know, you're, you're, you're risking it. What, what do you think allowed you to take that risk? I don't know. I just asked myself, if not now, when? There was no right answer. The sun wasn't going to rise at a perfect time and the stars weren't going to align. If I didn't do it, then when would I do it? And the answer came back simple. Just go do it. Just stop thinking about it. Because the more you think about it, the more reasons you will come up with not to do it. Were you worried at all about failing? The fear of not having the chance to fail was greater than the fear of failure. So I think you go on to Quintiles from Cisco. Is that right? I did. And then at some point you decide to go to Carolina and get an MBA. What were you looking for? One, that was the path out of the engineering path that I was on. I didn't want to be in that path anymore. I, it's not that I don't love technology. I, I still know how to code and I still enjoy doing it sometimes. But I could see no path out of that uh, organization if I didn't take a step directionally perpendicular. Because you're essentially saying, look, I'm going in this direction. I got to just take a right, hard right turn. And that was a way to do that. And it was also to see what's possible because that wasn't available in the limited environment I had. So you went there to learn to be an entrepreneur. Did it teach you to be an entrepreneur? It taught me that there are tools you need if you go into entrepreneurship. I don't think it, and it's probably just me, I don't think it, anybody can teach you to be an entrepreneur. You, you're going to have to develop that risk tolerance and just go do it. It's hard work, but I don't, I wouldn't say that. No, did not teach me to be an entrepreneur. What, if you look back on your MBA experience, which tools did you get that have been most important to you as an entrepreneur? Every time you meet a person, and this is what I, when I, when folks ask me to come back to an MBA school and talk about it, I said, look, the best thing you can get out of the MBA program is a network. Ask questions, ask a lot of them, even if they laugh at you, ask questions. And by the way, ask your professors for one connection. Your professors are really smart. They work with some of, they're working with head of, you know, CEO of Coke. They're working with CEO of Cree. You should ask them to make a meaningful connection for you. And if I can say one thing out of an MBA program, get that. So we're going to shift to the beer business because mm-hmm. you spent a lot of time in that. And that's actually how we got to know each other. Um, so when did you first start making beer? The first batch we made was 2009. So, and that was your first, that was not a professional batch. Did you start homebrewing first? Oh yeah. It's um, poorly, really poorly. So how did you go from it's a hobby to we're going to start a business? The idea to start a brewery, it was again, simple. I have always believed beer is a, like when people go out, I think they talk about, let's go out for a beer. Even if they're going out for a wine, but it's about, let's go out for a beer. And I wanted to be in an industry that I was A, really unfamiliar with, but B, really enjoyed and liked. But a lot of people have these conversations when they're in business school or sitting around with their friends. Hey, we're mm-hmm. going to do this someday. I, I, as you know, my story, my friend Scott and I mm-hmm. talked about uh, going from home brewing to starting a brew pub, and we never did. We never quit our regular jobs. It probably financially worked out way better, but 
but we never did it. What allowed you to walk away so that this time you're at Quintiles when you decide to leave? Yeah, actually, the gentleman who was my boss there was really cool too. I tried to quit and he said, well, how about you just work three days a week with me? I'm like, sure. Can I work Thursday to Sunday at the brewery? They're like, yeah. So I did part-time quitting, but then it got to a point where I went back and that by that time, the gentleman had left and the new gentleman that was there, I said, look, it's not fair to you. It's not fair to me. I'm not giving you my full uh, attention and I'm not giving Lone Rider my full attention. So I got to go. What allowed me to do that was I really don't have a good answer. I just wanted to do it. I just needed to do it. I think the, I've heard you say this, but we also found it quoted somewhere is that you described uh, the beginning of Lone Rider as uh, we have a West Texas themed brewery in Raleigh, North Carolina, making a German style Hefeweizen run by a guy from India. And I believe if I remember another part of the story, you even decided to start selling it into winter, which is not normally when you would sell a Hefeweizen. So how does this seem like a good idea to you at the time? I did approach everything with uh, scale in mind. I said, if I'm going to do something, it's going to be a brand. Yeah, it's not going to be, oh, we opened a brewery and now we're selling beer. This is great. Uh, that's why there's stories behind every single one of the beers that we make. But the most um, quintessential image I could keep in my mind that defined an outlaw, I think outside the box, was the Wild West American Cowboy. And I also was a Clint Eastwood fan. <laughs> I watched a lot of spaghetti westerns. But that image is what allowed us to grow as a brand. Second, um, in terms of making a half of and that was a very planned move. It was no competition locally. Blue Moon was the only competition. Uh, the cost was good. The... Um, the German style, Hefeweizen style was really not hair. And in North Carolina, there is somewhere all the time. The RI data, which is the industry data, said that that style was on the rise. It actually focused on women more. So we were able to bring an entire new class of individuals to the beer business because it's primarily male-dominated. So all those reasons was why we made it. The business to get started, one of the challenges was you really couldn't get access to distribution. Essentially, mm -hmm. it was a closed market. And so my sense is, is that in the beginning, the challenge you were facing was how do we get into distribution? Yep. Today, I look at the business 10 years later, and you've had a ton of success, uh, including being named last year a CEO of the year, which is a great honor. But as you look ahead, we're 10 years in, it almost feels like thing you needed most, which was to get into distribution, mm -hmm. is maybe one of the biggest challenges you're facing today to grow the business. Does that make sense? It does, Absolutely. And it actually is true. And I know the wholesalers are going to hear this, but I'm open with them about this. It depends on which channel and how you have built your brand. The channel opened up with the AB wholesalers and the Miller Coors wholesalers. And the reason for the channel opening up wasn't that, hey, they saw an opportunity in the market. They said, Craft beer, what they call their golden cases. Essentially, you make money on craft beer. Anheuser-Busch, you make money on. It's great, but you don't make a ton. But it keeps the light on and keeps a lot of lights on. I mean, some of the wholesalers are fairly well off. What happened was that access opened up. Then a flood of craft breweries came in. And then craft beer became really popular in America. And then the laws started changing and the channel access became more varied. But the legislation still makes it extremely difficult to get out of a wholesaler. So you don't, this is not free market enterprise. It's like if you're in a marriage 
And the only person that can divorce is your wife. You, <laughs> you have no option. It's, so the channel access became really legislation tied it down. And now because there are so many breweries and because um, there is also the consumers have shifted, uh, consumers are looking for new, what's exciting. And, um, <clears throat> and the channel access by AB, by buying up 10 different craft breweries, also confusing the issue, that channel access is closing. But you still can't get out of those relationships a lot of times because, again, legislation doesn't allow you to. So I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about some people stuff. Um, there's a quote I want to read that you gave because I thought it was very interesting and something I hadn't heard you say directly, but I, it makes sense. And you said, I've always been a big believer in empathy more than sympathy. The emotion that allows you to understand how another individual feels and then respond with positivity is amazing. Over the years, I've seen many acts of kindness from a simple offer of let me buy your food to you can crash on my couch tonight, it's cold outside. These are the things that inspire me and make me want to leave the world a better place. I know I'm biased here, but craft beer industry is fairly empathetic. Who can't be empathetic after drinking a delicious cold one? So I'm curious. It's a really interesting insight, but do you, so how do you balance that mm -hmm. approach with the realities of trying to run a business in a really competitive industry with a lot of challenges today? You know, it is tough. Um, craft beer, I'll give you another example. When I first went into craft beer and went to a craft brewers conference, I get to craft brewers conference and the gift for every brewer was a pair of nose hair trimmers and a beard trimmer. Uh, I don't fit that mold. Uh, but that was 80% of the mold. Yeah. But the idea about the whole thing was that every person I met in the beer industry was very willing to help. When we started, there was not a lot of um, access to information. Uh, we didn't know there was a gentleman out on the West Coast that actually helped us with knowledge so that we could start. And he did it for no other reason than just, he just wanted to be helpful. He had no extra grind. He had no agenda and he helped. So we kept trying to do that with other breweries as well. But now the access to information is very simple. Now there are consultants, now there's access to equipment, everything is on demand and ready. And there are several suppliers that'll give you help. None of that existed. So the craft beer came out of empathy. But in terms of in a competitive market, I think it's now more about empathy and clarity. I will absolutely help anybody that goes, hey, man, I don't have hops today. They're like, okay, come on over. We have, we have them. Take them. And uh, when you get yours, just send us ours back. Simple as that. But in the market, it's more competitive. You're not going to share your market data and you're not going to go help somebody get a tap that's probably yours that they're going to take. So that becomes different. But I think that clarity is also common in a competitive environment. You just have to be upfront with people on what you can and can't do, but do it with the best of intentions. Something else we talked about um, that I know you believe in a lot, which is a, it's a great perspective, is you mentioned, and I won't get it, I, this isn't a quote, but you said mm -hmm. something along the line, you were reminding me one day that a business is about more than profits. And, and I agree with that philosophically, mm -hmm. I do. Um, but... I think the conversation we were in, and I want to share it with people because I think that a lot of people struggle with this mm -hmm. is at the same time, when you're in a business, unless it's all your own money, then you've also, you're using other people's money. You have this commitment to, to these investors, right? You have a yeah. commitment to deliver a return to them. So the business isn't all about profits, 
but you have this contract to an investor. How do you balance that, right? How do you get your head around the fact that ultimately you've agreed to give them their money back and more at some point? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Running an organization is you have in order of priority. Uh, you have uh, responsibilities. It's like when I was working at Cisco, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. All I cared about was like, hey, I get to do cool stuff and they're paying me good money to do it. Uh, when you run your own business, that's uh, much more different and much more difficult because you do have an obligation to all the folks that actually believed in you enough to put the money in it. So that always stays on the top of your mind. It doesn't make any difficult decisions any less difficult. It just makes you say, you just have to be made. Do you think sometimes that uh, you know, if you could do it all over again, do you think that you get the balance right or do you think it's a struggle? I think we constantly learn. So if we're not getting better or evolving, what are we doing? No, obviously we'll do everything different. Um, the reason I ask is, so we used to have a big debate. People would talk about, you know, it's not about your shareholders. It's about your stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And that's why I would say, okay, let's think about that, right? So our stakeholders were, in the most general terms, our employees, yeah. um, our customers. Um, you could argue the community is one of those stakeholders. And then you would say your investors. And they said, look, it's really about balancing the stakeholders' mm -hmm. interests. And philosophically, I agree with that. But practically, it doesn't work that way. What I, what I would say is, I agree, that's great, mm -hmm. except that if you don't take care of the shareholder, you won't have an opportunity to take, to care, take of care of the rest of the stakeholders. stakeholders. Yeah, and exactly. So, and what's funny is one actually enables you to do the rest. And so I find there's always this pressure on business owners. Hey, help this person out. Help. It's about everybody. And the answer is actually... If you take care of the enterprise, mm -hmm. the enterprise has the most ability to take care of everyone else. And, you know, the folks that ask that are asking for the right reasons and they have every good intention for that. It, it's funny, like in nonprofit uh, world, I used to at UNC give uh, this conversation or just a small speech. And it was do good by doing good. Like you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of anybody else. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then how are you going to? You know, if you don't take care of your body, how are you actually going to go serve in a soup kitchen or work at Habitat for Humanity? You're not going to be able to do that if you're not healthy. And by the way, think about what Bill Gates has done. I mean, they tackle big problems, but he's able to do that because of what he did. And so in an organization, it's no different. If, if someone came to you this afternoon and they're working in a big company like you were, whether it be Quintiles or Cisco or somewhere else, and they're like, boy, I think I want to maybe do something different, but I'm not, I'm not sure I can. What advice would you give that person that's thinking about taking the kind of leap that you did to, to leave your job and start a small business? I asked them a simple question. I said, what's your hobby? What do you love? And they will tell me. So this, I had a conversation with this one gentleman. I said, what do you love? He's like, I love woodworking. I said, great. Uh, build me a $5,000 chair. He's like, what do you mean? I said, build me a $5,000 chair and either I'll sell it for you or I will buy it. He goes, okay. He called me next day with 20 reasons why he couldn't do it. I said, don't start a business. Another thing I know you've, you're pretty passionate about is mentors. So, and I, there's a lot of talk today, especially in, you know, when students are in college about, hey, mm -hmm. you got to find mentors and, and find someone. To, how do you go about finding a mentor if, if you're someone just getting started out? The funny thing about mentors is you're going to get as much out of uh, a mentorship as much as you put into it. The first thing I would say is be committed that you actually want something out of that mentor because don't waste their time 
if you don't have any intention of taking advantage of what they're telling you. So to find one, I would say, again, it's all about connections and people. Ask the person you trust the most, what do you need first? And who do you need? And then look out at the leaders in the Look, you, you are um, you're CEO, you are CEO of a very successful company. You are now semi-retired, doing four different things at the same time, and while finding time to drink beer at the same time. But if somebody sent you an email, and you really liked that email that came from them, or some connection, they don't have to be in form of an email. And if you felt like helping that person, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, most people are just afraid to ask. And they don't said, look, find where you want to go to and find the direct path to it. You, you may have a mentor in your network or don't be afraid to reach out to somebody. They're going to say no. Well, the answer is no until you ask. So just ask. Yeah. One of the things I find is that, you know, especially um, while I was CEO of Korea, I got lots of requests to people to connect. And there were two types. One was someone who was transactionally trying to create a network and connect. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get much out of those. Mm -hmm. But I think for the person that's looking for a mentor, what do you offer them? And I, that sounds funny, but the people don't mentor for the heck of it. They, mm -hmm. they get something out of that relationship. And I think that's the trick to this is that it's a two, a successful mentorship in my mind is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And too often we treat it for the people looking for mentors as a one-way transactional thing. Yeah. And, and I think, and they approach it that way. And the reality is, is a cold call email from someone I have no connection to a relationship. It's hard to know, you know, how many of those times do I want to go get coffee versus there've been a few people that have done it in a very compelling way. And yes. I'm interested in what I may only get out of it, the reward of helping someone, or in some mm -hmm. cases I learned something from it. Those are the best ones for me. Yeah. Um, it's, but I, as I said, like, you know, just take your time to research before you reach out to a person. Don't just say, hey man, can I get 10 minutes of your time for coffee? For what? Uh, what am I doing sitting there with you? It's not that I don't want to meet you. I'm happy to. And if you came through a warm lead and I trust that person, I will absolutely go meet you. It's not even about that. The time's the only thing that we don't make any more of. That's all we got. And if the other person didn't spend enough time to ask you for yours, then why should you give it? What do you know now that you wish you knew when you got started? I think the biggest thing that I would say for me personally, don't try to make everybody happy. It's never going to work. That's probably the biggest thing for me. That's really insightful. I don't think I've, I don't, people almost never say that, but Sumit, I think you're really onto something. I think this idea of trying to please everyone is a, it's a it's a no win situation that I think in in my career I got there pretty early, but I think if you if you don't you can never get anything done. Mm -hmm. um, so what's your biggest failure? God, today, I'm just, um, not that, today's failure, but like in general. I mean, uh, I don't. Look, I look at everything as a learning opportunity. Everything I did, I did, and nobody else did for me. So I don't consider them as failures, but more like I did shit I shouldn't have done. So which one? Oh, so that's actually great. Cause honestly, I, one of my uh, themes of the book is failure is the fuel of innovation, right? It's, 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 a, it's not about the failure. It's about the learning. So mm -hmm. what's the thing you did that did not go as planned where you learned the most? I'm 
thinking on how to answer that question because it's a it's a pretty large question, yeah? So let me turn that around and ask you and then I'll answer it. And the reason for that is because the way I look at this is I look at several areas of life, yeah? What is more important? Yeah, the I would say the biggest failure in business, if you're sticking to the business side of things, is that um, I really should have waited to take money. So I would, it was very helpful. We did it right. But there was an opportunity where we should have stopped and said, we're going to do these five things before we take any money. And, and that, w- that goes back to the concept of, hey, let's really make sure that the direction that we were walking in, because at that time, it was wide open. We were growing. We started with 770 barrels the first year, 3520 the next year, 7500 the third year, 11,000 the fourth year, and we just kept growing. But industry changed on us. We didn't even realize that it changed on us, and it changed fast. And it changed fast and hard. And then we had to make sure our priorities were different. So I think we should have waited to take money. You asked me what I would, it's funny, no one's thrown that question back at me. So a few things come to mind. In terms of running Cree, Mm -hmm. I think the thing I learned is that when when you realize someone was in the wrong job, Mm -hmm. whether they, the people decisions I made, I always made far later than I should have. And they would have been better for me and the company and the person to help them get to that decision sooner. Um, and it's, it, look, it was a relationship-built culture. And so you invest yeah. in relationships, you don't want to undo them. But absolutely, there wasn't a single one. I don't remember a situation where there wasn't an indication a people issue was coming up. And I waited that it ever worked itself out. Mm-hmm. And um, almost all the cases, the person moved on to something else. And everyone was better off because of it. And I think we all struggle with that one. So that would, mm-hmm. I'd say at one level, I think uh, that's more of a, a per- people side of Cree. I think strategically, so Cree was built around innovation and these principles of innovation that are in the book and that I like yeah. to talk about on the podcast. At the end of Cree, we weren't very innovative. And so what we had done is to try to run a larger public company and to make more predictable results. Um, the term I use is the innovator spirit that kind of built the company. Mm-hmm we let it get away. And it was probably, it was the right decision for what the shareholders wanted Cree to become. So I think we did what they wanted. I don't know that it made Cree better, but I think Cree is going to be just fine, but it wasn't right for me. Mm -hmm. So either I should have recognized that sooner and realized I wasn't the CEO to run the management driven company. And it's not that I couldn't do it. I could do it. It wasn't much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, we should have kept Cree the way that we wanted and we were built to run it and just yeah. pursued innovation. But we got to got stuck in between. And I think halfway between anywhere isn't good for the people or the business. And then on a personal note, um, it took me a long time. It was when my daughter, I dropped her off at Marquette when she was 18. She's my oldest daughter. And I realized that I had missed almost all her growing up. And it doesn't mean you could work less at Cree. I had to change how I managed my life. So... Mm-hmm. I came home from that trip and I figured out how I was going to be the CEO and be a baseball coach. All it meant was I'd leave at four o'clock and coach little league for two hours. And I'd either come back to work or work till 10 or 11 at night. I yeah. could do both. And I got a little less sleep. I, the team was forced to take on some responsibility that they, I couldn't do myself, but I wish I'd have figured that one out because, uh, 
you're, you know, I think just like we don't get any more time, mm-hmm. families and children, it's a pretty cool experience. And uh, you can, you can actually be all in on your job and do that. You just have to do it in a way I think that's different than most people expect. And, you know, I've talked to some other entrepreneurs and, you know, someone said to me, one of their keys to success was, is if you're going to do this mm-hmm. in whatever your family situation, they need to be on board with it because you can't do this halfway. In the end, we have a life to live. And if we don't get to live that, then everything else that we ever will do may create value, may not create value, but you'll lose some yourself somewhere along the way and you don't want to do that. Um, back to beer to wrap this up. Yeah. So favorite beer you've ever made? Oh, that's a tough one. That's like asking which of your kids is ugly. Um, or which one is beautiful. Well, yeah, but you're saying favorite beer, so then the rest of them are ugly. But um, I don't like, I'm partial to that I Jack. No, Porter, the style that got me into it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm partial to it. I don't know if that's the, that's the fun thing about beer. Everybody's got a style. But yeah, that I Jack for me. How about uh, as we wrap up here, any question you wish I would have asked you that I didn't get to today or you were expecting that you want to talk about? Look, I, as you told me, it's going to be a conversation. So I I never expect any questions. I'd like to actually walk in uh, in conversations like this, just seeing what would come out of it. It was more of a business thing. I would just sit down and prepare everything. But this is a better format because it forces you to talk about things that you generally just wouldn't talk about. And you actually hit on some things that I wasn't expecting you to, which is good. Well, um, so anything, last thought about innovation that you think you'd want to share with people listening that they think they might be misunderstood? As someone who's lived through starting a business uh, and, and going through different challenges, anything out there you want to share with them about innovation? If you think you innovate and you don't have a black book of ideas, you're fooling yourself. That's great. Well, Samit, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you. Look forward to doing it again. Yeah, this is fun. Now we can drink more. All right. I want to thank Summit for joining me on Innovators on Tap and being open and honest about his own innovator's journey. My hope is that Summit's story inspires you to either innovate at your current company or take a leap of faith and try and turn your passion into a profitable business. As Summit mentioned on this episode, sometimes it's as simple as why not and if not now, when. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is that anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.